It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gabfest for November 28th, 2014, the No True Bill edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm in New York today. On today's show, the Ferguson grand jury decision, was it just? Then, is a threat on Facebook free speech or is it a crime? And we will discuss every single potential Republican presidential candidate. No, we will not do that because that would take that would take weeks, Emily. I guess so. But we will at least fire the gun to start the Republican presidential campaign. Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And in Slate Plus, we will remember the tragic comic opera that was Marion Barry. Joining me in New York studio is, of course, Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily Bazelon of The New York Times Magazine. Hello, hello. And from Washington, D.C. is Slate and CBS News' very own John Dickerson. Hello, John. Hello, David. And we're going to have a special guest to start this first segment about Ferguson. We have uh, Slate's, what is your title, Jamel? Slate's Jamel Bowie, who is a <laughs> political writer, political correspondent, wise man. What, are, what is your title? I think it's just staff writer. Slate's staff writer. That's a good one. That's the best title. You hang on to that. Yeah, it's like, that's a title that people give up because they're like, oh, I need to be blah. But that's what you are. You're on staff and you write. Good job. <laughs> So, on Monday night, the prosecutor in the Ferguson case announced that a grand jury would not charge Darren Wilson for the killing of Michael Brown. Brown's killing, which sparked protests for weeks this summer, was found not to be a crime by the grand jury. Wilson was, I guess, by the logic of the grand jury, he was acting to protect himself, and his use of deadly force was therefore not wrong, or he had reason. Well, Emily will get into the the nitty, legal nitty-gritty of there. There were protests and riots, small riots in the hours after the, the decision. There was the extraordinary spectacle of President Obama giving a speech on the left side of my television screen and on the right side. There were protesters attacking cars. There was tear gas billowing, president calling for calm. So, Jamel, you have been writing a lot about Ferguson. You've been writing a lot about this issue. Was this decision, first of all, was it a surprise? Second of all, was it unjust? I don't think it was a surprise. Um, I don't think it was a surprise because if you just look at the, the, I guess, the history of police officers getting getting indicted for, for shootings or even having shootings classified unjustified, it just doesn't happen. The last case I can think of off the top of my head was in South Carolina uh, a month or two ago. And that was notable because we had on video a cop just shooting a guy for no particular reason. So that's, that, that to me is like really the, the level you have to get at as a police officer to receive punishment for any of this. Shoot a man on camera and it's not ambiguous at all. Right. And so, I mean, for me, it wasn't a surprise. When I was in Ferguson over the summer, um, I talked to quite a few people who sort of were either were measured in their optimism that, you know, they were hoping to get an indictment since it was so clear that something's fishy here, but they didn't expect Wilson to get convicted of anything, or people who were just completely cynical and assumed that nothing would really happen. And unfortunately, you know, I think the the cynical view uh, prevailed here. 
as for whether it was an, it was unjust, I, that's something I've actually been trying to figure out for myself because it, the process in a lot of ways is very flawed. The prosecutor, just from his statement last night announcing the grand jury decision, was clearly kind of acting sort of like a defense uh, attorney. If you read Wilson's testimony to the grand jury, it really feels like he's not being pressed particularly hard on the details of his of his experience. And it was just the, the entire thing of the grand jury essentially not really being given any instructions, just being given all this evidence and said, well, I guess you have to decide now is very odd. Um, and so all of those sort of lean towards the, this was, if not unjust, then very fishy and in some sense illegitimate. But then you can easily imagine a situation where maybe the jury is a different composition, mostly black instead of mostly white, where uh, McCullough, the prosecutor, does end up saying, you know, we think we can get him on manslaughter and I'd, I'd like you to uh, try to return an indictment for that. And the grand jury is still deciding otherwise. On the racial competition part, that hasn't happened. But there are other cases where prosecutors are more invested in an indictment and the grand jury does not return one. Emily, as a scholar of the law, when you look at what happened, does it look fishy to you or does this look like a, a relatively normal legal proceeding that just happened to be at a time and place where there was enormously heightened emotion and attention? Well, I agree with all the fishiness Jamel just raised about this particular prosecutor. But fishy, and... can I just stop with that word? Wait, fishy, let her explain sorry. what she's going to no, say. No, no, I just, I want to go back because actually I didn't talk to Jamel about it. Fishy... Fishy implies there's an action to cause something to be out of the ordinary. It implies agency. All right. I so guess. let me go back. Do, I, I, I want to so know if you, you're saying there's agency in that. Okay. Sorry. So there's two parts to this. One is what Jamel was just talking about. This guy, Robert McCullough, should he have recused himself from being the prosecutor here? All the mistakes that law enforcement made, we can like go into a litany of them, you know, after Michael Brown's shooting happened. Let's just take after. And there are so many things that went wrong up to and including releasing, releasing this news at night, which was totally crazy and irresponsible. So I can't separate all of that from this decision. The other thing that is important to point out is that this was not a normal grand jury process by any stretch. And what I mean by that is usually prosecutors go in, they present a couple witnesses, they come out with an indictment. It's quick and dirty, and they unreal, unspool all the evidence in a trial if one ever gets to a trial. This prosecutor chose to put a lot of evidence in front of this grand jury. The grand jury met for, I think it's 25 days over a period of months. There is a transcript that's more than 4,000 pages long. And so what McCullough said about this last night was this grand jury, they're the only 12 people in the world who have seen all of the evidence. And so that's why we should trust them, because they have looked at this case more closely than any of you all media, you know, or social media or whoever observers out there. So here's the thing. I'm about not quite halfway through this transcript. And yes, I am skimming along as I go because it's super long. But what I keep thinking about is that in there is still such power of selectivity in the presentation of this evidence. And what I mean by that is that there are lots and lots of witnesses who either saw or claimed to see this shooting, and their accounts differ in small and large ways. When the witnesses who are being questioned say that Michael Brown stopped running, as opposed to kept going at Darren Wilson when the fatal shots were fired, and this really is the key factual dispute about whether this fatal 
shooting was permissible for a police officer. The witnesses who have a narrative that is more sympathetic to Brown get a lot of questions from the prosecutors. And it turns out that some of what they're saying is inconsistent with the forensic evidence, or they say that Brown was on a place in the street that is, say, 20 feet away from where the blood spattering actually was. And so in the asking of the questions, the prosecutors are making it sound like they don't really believe these witnesses and that these witnesses, the the narrative that is emerging to me halfway through is that these witnesses, after the fact, came up with a story that blamed Wilson and exonerated Brown and that, in fact, the true witness, in particular, this guy is called witness number 10, very early in the transcript, is the one who is backing up Wilson and saying that Brown did what this witness called was a full charge. And I can't tell, but it's it's really clear that the prosecutors are shaping how this was presented to the grand jury in a way that if this was a normal trial, you would expect the defense attorney to be doing. Yeah. And so you should remind everyone that in a grand jury proceeding, there is no defense. There is nobody probing in any kind of secondary way. Right. And usually what you have in front of the grand jury is the prosecutor selectively presenting evidence that allows him or her to bring an indictment. That's the point. That's why prosecutors can indict a ham sandwich in front of a grand jury, because the grand jury is usually used as a rubber stamp. This is quite the opposite. This is the prosecutors trying to get at their version of the truth in this proceeding. And look, there's an argument for this. I'm not saying I agree with it in the circumstance, but I'm going to make it. The argument is that prosecutors should not indict people unless they think that they can prove beyond a reasonable doubt that the person committed the crime. And that is not fair to put Darren Wilson through the what in this case would be incredibly fraught circumstances of being tried for a crime if the prosecutors just don't believe from their sifting of the evidence that he's guilty. So that's the argument from what they did. I mean, I cannot tell myself whether I think that that was fair or not. And this is a problem with doing it all in front of a grand jury, because even though we have the transcripts, we don't have public testimony. And that makes it much harder to evaluate ourselves. Can I just go back to one other thing you said, Emily, which is that the the question of whether he was running at Wilson is key. Isn't it also important, this question of whether Wilson thought, well, I guess, A, whether it's true that Brown reached into the car and reached for his weapon? I mean, obviously, there was no, it's a, he said, well, it's just you rely on Wilson there. But I guess my point is, isn't one of the standards that whether Wilson thought he was under threat and therefore the whether he was running at him wouldn't actually matter at that point. I guess so. I mean, to me, the scuffle in the car is not super relevant because Wilson got out of the car and chased Brown afterward, and his decision to fire the fatal shot was made after the car scuffle. Let me just say, though, I did read all of Wilson's testimony it's insane. It's I mean, I, it's, I can't believe <laughs> why, it's now, true. Why is it it's bananas? like a really Wait, bad CSI Jamel, episode. Jamal, why is it crazy? All right. So there are a couple sections to it, but the I, I think that the gist of it is that Wilson, who it should be said is 6'4 and 210 pounds, perceived uh, Mike Brown as being, I think in his words, this sort of Hulk Hogan-like yes. figure. Um, he at one point describes Brown running at him and him firing at Brown and then Brown having a look of like sort of like vacant anger as if like this is unusual. And he that used is, the word demon. demon right, right, demon, yeah. right. And that and that Brown seemed to be puffing up as he got shot, which to me, and I said this on Twitter, actually sounds like the modus operandi of a supervillain. There's a super yes, there's a totally. super, there's a supervillain in the X-Men comics named Sebastian Shaw who can absorb kinetic energy and become stronger. And that's who Darren Wilson was describing. The other thing is the quotes he attributes to Brown 
I mean, they sound like how you might imagine a black teenager would talk. And I can't if believe that if you weren't an actual black teenager. Right. So, and we're yeah, white. I mean, the that. idea that Brown in this circumstance would have said to an officer like, you know, you're too much of a pussy to shoot me. I just don't believe it. And to that, what that particular section reminded me of is the George Zimmerman's description of yes. what happened with Trayvon Martin. Right. George Zimmerman describes Trayvon Martin as running up to the car, as uh, saying, I'm going to get you. You're going to die tonight. These like extremely aggressive actions and statements which just don't don't fit with i was a black teenager at one point i (laughs) knew a lot of black teenagers my brother was a black teenager very recently i knew a lot of other black teenagers through him that just doesn't sound like any black teenager i've ever encountered in my entire life especially in this circumstance where if if brown did what wilson says he was it was like a death wish it's just not plausible it is not plausible what is the larger way Jamel, you have been writing about this problem of race, cops, poor neighborhoods, minority neighborhoods. What is the larger way we can get some measure of goodness or progress out of a terrible event? Now, clearly, it is not going to be through a legal proceeding now. What is the thing that can produce something good? I don't know. Maybe for the Brown family in particular, a civil suit could bring some measure of at least closure. But for, I mean, for us as a as a society, as sort of a country looking at the events in Ferguson and then looking to other cities like the St. Louis area and seeing potential Fergusons everywhere, I'm not sure what what brings any goodness to this, um, especially given the limits of attempts to redress racial injustice. I mean, frankly, the public doesn't really have much appetite for it. And so even something I think as straightforward and ostensibly reasonable as making sure police officers are wearing video cameras and making sure that those recordings are available, people can get access to them, or strengthening independent review boards or even creating them in places where they don't exist, even steps like that um, are guaranteed to encounter a tremendous amount of pushback. You know, I can I can sort of like imagine different things you could do to make conditions better. But in terms of those things actually happening, I don't really know. But I would say, to cite your example, I mean, that's a great the example of recording. That's a great example where there certainly will be pushback because every person who feels that Darren Wilson was right in this case will be will sort of poo-poo this as some kind of ridiculous bureaucratic thing. But in fact, we're generally moving towards total surveillance all the time anyway. And there are places, I believe, where cops are always yes, are always there on. are cities who have adopted this. And if and, you think of how much power the cops are have, absolutely we should be able to see what they are doing. The other thing that I think, I mean, the, the thing that I would look for, which is even more in the realm of fantasy, I suppose, is that it feels to me like there was never a chance... It was never reasonable to expect that Darren Wilson should be charged with this murder, nor do I actually think he probably should have been charged with this murder, that there's enough ambiguity in what happened. And his training was such cops are trained to fucking shoot people. They're trained when facing what they perceive to be threats to take out a gun and shoot people. That to me is like where I would love to see a change in American culture is that that the cop response to almost any perceived threat in the world, especially one from someone who's black and male, is a gun. And and that is something that needs to shift. Emily's in taking breath. <laughs> well, I've been thinking about this a lot, whether the legal standard, since that's part of what's driving the cultural way in which cops respond, needs to change. We have in the United States a 
really permissive standard where if you're a cop and you reasonably believe at the moment that you or someone else is in imminent danger of bodily harm or death, or if there's a felon escaping or fleeing, you're allowed to shoot. And there are other countries that have much more restrictive standards. Like in the UK, basically, it's last resort to pull out a deadly weapon and shoot it. And that shift would make a big difference. And I but it's feel a, not like a, the, to me, it's not a legal shift. It's a kind of cultural training shift. Well, but it's a legal shift because this is all about what police departments fear liability for, right? That's what's going to make the difference. It's about money and making it too expensive to kill people. And the other thing is, to me, it's relevant that the evidence is that black men are so disproportionately shot out because that evidence of essentially racial bias and discrimination and the decision making of the police should factor into our being very wary of a permissive John, standard. And, John. Well, and it's legal because it's the standard that is at play in the grand jury, right? I mean, yes. if it's a tougher standard, then the grand jurors have to indict. have to indict. Because- I know, I know, I know, but I hate this. This is the classic. Okay, we just had a legal proceeding, and Emily is here, and she's holding forth, and so forth, and it's all very <laughs> persuasive. But like solving these problems simply by saying at the back end. We are going to make it. We're going to make it. We're going to make it. No, the front end, make the front end better, and you have fewer problems on the back end. And, well, I mean, you know, I would say don't deal with the back end. I would say deal with the back end second. I would say, like, try to develop a police department where where they spend half the time training with their guns. But if you are the cops and you're in fear of your state, or you're just out there trying to do your job, look, let's remember being a police officer is mostly boring or it's super scary. They are going to take as much leeway as we are going to give them in the legal system. They are not going to pull back on this en masse voluntarily unless the standards change and there's criminal or civil liability. Liability at stake, but not we, in this country. We absolutely change how cops do their copping. They there are many more cops who are walking or on bikes and things like that. That's a way of changing something at the front end, which may, puts people closer in contact with the people they're policing. Where I strongly suspect, although I don't know this, and maybe Jamel will stomp on my head right now. It probably reduces the incidence of, of deadly force when cops are closer to the communities sure. they're policing. And that's a much that to me is a something that seems like a better idea than saying we're not gonna we're gonna charge cops. So I am going to stomp on your head a little bit here because there, there is no I don't know off the top of my head the exact stats for community policing, though I do agree that in general community policing is a very good idea. But I do know that when it comes to policing and diverse police forces, there's very little evidence to suggest that, say, a black cop is less likely to use deadly force against a black person, which suggests to me that what you are really looking at are legal standards driving police behavior. And I think that as a part of that, you can begin to Why work. I don't think that says that. I think it says that the cop culture is very, very strong. And but you're, a, you whether wanted... you're black or white and you're a cop, you're going to respond in ways that cops respond. And I'm You're gonna get asking to that as- cop culture to change itself without any stick. And exactly. I just don't think that's going to happen. Right. I th- because I th- there is a real thing at stake for them here. Like, let's remember, it is really hard but to cops be a don't want, But cops do not want to go around shooting people. Co- no, even even not, white racist cops don't want to go around shooting but black But when they're on the when there's some people. moment of uncertainty and there is a black teenager who they're scared of, they'd rather have it be their choice about whether to shoot than to think, oh, if I make the wrong choice, I'm going to prison. Let me put it differently. Like, if you have a taser, wouldn't you rather use your taser than your gun? There's no evidence that non-lethal weapons have reduced the lethality of police. 
In fact, in fact, I, I, in fact, tasers. What about country? Too, well, Jamel, what about countries where cops don't carry lethal weapons? They don't shoot as many people. But they don't they have don't tasers kill. instead. They, sure they but do. I guess sure they, they carry do. Or they carry, bullets. you know, they carry. But these are also probably countries to go to Emily's point that that have just different legal standards. And I think I think changing the culture of policing is something that you have to do as well. You know, in my ideal world, police officers would receive mandatory and regular training about implicit bias. But these things have to happen together. I mean, it wasn't just at the same time that it wasn't just legal standards that have led us to a place where police behave in this way. It also wasn't just, you know, independent development of police culture. The two things happened together and they have to be addressed together. Can I seek the opinion of Jamel or or, or you two about the president, which is there was a lot of assessment of his remarks in the in the um, press room at the end of the night last night and how tough it was for him to be calling for calm and peaceful protests when on the split screen there was you know smoke bombs being uh, being shot by the police and and fires already starting was he just a victim of circumstance was there anything better that he could have done did he miss an opportunity given that he's the first african-american president is that crazy to think that he has some special magic he can drop on this moment jamal i am very conflicted about this because on one hand i can completely see the reason why barack obama does not say anything more than he does even if he looks ridiculous i mean we know this for a fact the last time barack obama inserted himself into a controversy involving the police his approval rating among white people just took a precipitous decline. Just, is this Trayvon Martin? No, this was Skip Gates. This was Skip oh, Gates. Skip Gates. But he was great in the Trayvon Martin moment in a way that he wasn't last night. And it helped polarize Trayvon Martin to the extent that to think that now George Zimmerman is some kind of weird right wing folk hero. Huh. He was also in a different place in his presidency right. when he when he said this. Skip now, Gates it, which, which gets to my other side of this. He's not running for re-election. You know. Whoever's a Democratic nominee, it's it's going to try to run away from Obama or try to contrast herself with Obama very much. And I, I think at this point, he has nothing to lose by being a bit more forthright because we know he can be a bit more forthright. His Trayvon Martin statement is evidence of that, sort of like his casual comments over the years, evidence of that. I think he could have said something more, though, even with that, he would be running the line of sort of like – Condoning, like incitement. People, yeah, I mean, people could... get really weird about riots, and and which is fair. Which <laughs> is fair. Uh, but it's it's really difficult for people to sort of even begin to understand and empathize with the decision to riot, and so wading into that is so fraught that even if Obama wanted to say more, I'm not sure that. He should have. Yeah. I I also wonder if he's getting some back channel from the Justice Department about how complicated and ambiguous, factually speaking, this case is in a way that didn't seem apparent in the beginning. Yeah, I I think that's what it felt like to me was that he he couldn't really speak to the protesters or potential protesters he was trying to reach in an honest and forthright way in front of the cameras. And so he was useless in that regard. If he was really intending to try and calm people – he wasn't going to be able to do that in the way he might most authentically be able to if it was all off the record and he was making a an appeal to common experience that would be more powerful. And it felt also like he had in his head some kind of understanding of either how complex or just as a, given his legal training, knowing what you explained, Emily, or knowing the, the situation, which is that it's awfully hard to get an indictment given this set of circumstances. I kind of think that this is a job for a white politician 
to no really to be able to say to white audiences, imagine if this happened in your neighborhood. How would you, how would you react to this? That's a great piece. That's a great point. That is a great. I mean, this, a, you do feel like you wish it, Bill Clinton would Bill Clinton would be knocking this one out of the park. Right. I mean, I, I don't think it's any accident that what is probably the best speech given on American race relations by president is LBJ's uh, speech to Howard in 1963. He was vice president at the time, but the point still stands. Like as as a white Southern politician, he sort of had the space to say these things in a way that I'm not sure anyone else could have. Right. And our racial pathology is basically a white person's pathology. So right. to white people. To why is there, why is there not the, why, where is the, the white Republican who would give a speech of that I sort? I mean, Rand Paul is, Rand is trying Paul? to kind of straddle this right now. I don't want to give him too much credit, but he's sort of <laughs> trying. <laughs> His response to the verdict here was that this was the politicians who created the drug laws that are forcing the police to be in these confrontational situations uh, in the inner city i'm trying to <laughs> accurately convey his uh it no, is a bit I of a bank, that's that's a bank right. shot that's a great bank shot it's a I bank like shot it. yeah. I, I think Rand paul's a bit too steeped in his father's libertarianism forever really ever to get out of that i think i think this is the the situation for a white southern politician like like a white southern politician who maybe cut their teeth on civil rights and regardless of where they are now in the partisan spectrum kind of gets it and those people I mean, those people exist, right? You can imagine a different life path for Mitch McConnell that could have made him a person like that. Hmm. There are no white Southern Democrats in Congress anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely up to a white Republican. Jamel Bowie, Slate staff writer. Thanks for joining us, Jamel. Thank you. Talk to you soon. Yep. This week, the Supreme Court will consider the case of Alanis v. the U.S. about a very unpleasant man, Anthony Alanis, who was sentenced to 44 months in prison, I think, 44 Yeah, months. he served like 38, so three years and change. For threatening his ex-wife and others on social media, the Supremes will consider whether his violent threats, which were derived largely from hip-hop lyrics. Oh, don't give him too much Some, credit. Look, you cabin oh that. Oh, my God. All right, derived partly from inspired by from the studio that brought you hip-hop lyrics, whether those threats were so incendiary and threatening that they constitute a crime or whether they're protected by the First Amendment and also how the Facebook aspect of this matters. So, Emily, outline the case. Outline the case. So, the the thing is, Anthony Alanis has styled himself as a misunderstood rapper who was merely trying to he actually called it therapeutic, all this threatening of his wife he was doing on Facebook. But before he started, you know, putting up links to the satire group Whitest Kids You Know and invoking Eminem, he was posting things like this. If I only knew then what I know now, I would have smothered your ass with a pillow, dumped your body in the back seat, dropped you off in Toad Creek and made it look like a rape and murder. I just don't see how that is art or rap or anything other than a threat to kill his wife. And it's one of several posts like this that were written before Tara Lanas, his estranged wife who had left him five months earlier, went to court and before he started talking about the First Amendment. It seems to me like he was being really scary. And when you look at the data in situations of intimate partner relationships gone bad, and then you look at people who make threats like this, there is a real link. There's a reliable predictor of actual violence. I think that Tara Lanas had really good reason to but be scared Can you scared outline the legal issue? Sorry. You get you kind of made that you, you argued the case before <laughs> telling us what the case yeah, was. Yeah. So the legal issue is more narrow. It's about what the standards should be for convicting someone of what's called a true threat. So already established in the law, we have this category of speech called the, quote, true threat. And it's okay to make it criminal. We don't treat it as 
with the sort of great exaltation we normally do with free speech because we think it's a very low value. We think that threats disrupt people's lives, even if they're never carried out. And we worry about the connection to real violence. So the question is, can juries instruct people like Anthony Alanis by thinking about how a reasonable person would understand this threat? Basically, the reasonable listener standard, the impact of the threat in the world, in which case you'd look at Tara Alanis and you'd say, well, she had reason to fear. And that's good enough, which is, in fact, why the jury convicted Anthony Alanis in this case. The more stringent standard would say you have to look through Alanis's actual intent. Did he, in fact, mean to threaten her? He says he didn't. He might still lose in the land of the subjective speaker standard because you could decide that what he's saying, as I think, is totally pretextual and that, in fact, he was making real threats, but you would view it in terms of his intent. And so if you're from the ACLU, for example, or any of the other numerous civil libertarian groups that have filed briefs in this case, you want this higher standard because you want to have more breathing room for free speech. And you also worry, particularly in the world of the internet, of people getting convicted of things where they never really intended. They were kind of just joking, making a prank, and they're going to end up in prison. And that's the sort of tension here. Right. Isn't it weird? I don't know if you guys thought about this. This is oddly, um, this is an odd parallel with the Ferguson case. If the Ferguson case is all about how Darren Wilson perceived the threat of Michael Brown, this is very much about how Alanis's wife perceived the threat to herself. Absolutely. And we were just talking about the legal standard for cops using deadly force. It's did the cop reasonably believe he was threatened in the moment in this now or other off here in, you know, true threats, First Amendment land. And we're having a big fight over whether it should be the reasonable belief of the target of the threat. So, John, when you hear about the this kind of what it is that Anthony Alanis does, is there any part of you where the First Amendment cries out within you and says, yes, but this is just speech? I mean, there are so many other things we have to adjudicate and figure out. I, I like the stability of the First Amendment and the just kind of the structure it provides so that we can then just know what to do in cases like this. I am that struck. That nice Bill of Rights. I li- Let's make room for it. I like, uh, I, I, Not although the whole Bill of Rights, because then you end up like in the Ninth and Tenth Amendment. It's like, what does that mean? That's true. The Ninth and Tenth are <laughs> too weird. And the Eighth, you can't Second even know it. You don't even know what the Eighth problem. is. Do you I know just, what the Eighth is? The Eighth is cruel and unusual punishment. All right. Seventh? Seventh is a right to jury, I think. Or maybe that's six. I think yeah, either six or seven. I think that's seven. And then six is... Third? Third is the one about quartering soldiers oh, in your house. All right, fine. But the ninth is the most the one well I'm so most confused by because the ninth is just like no one understands. The yeah, thing. the ninth is like well, all, I mean, I don't even want to get go down all the road right. of anyway. You're enumerated John, anyway, but sorry. you like that old reliable first. Yeah. Okay. So I obviously like the reliable first. I think you don't want to mess with it. But I do. I when in thinking about this, I was overwhelmed by the power of speech that persists that so so if you say something and it floats out into the air you say some horrible thing and then it just disappears into the air that's different than stuff that's posted out for the world and we've talked about this before that feels like it adds a power to me that gnaws at alanis's ex-wife in a more threatening and menacing way it's like stalking in the sense that it's always right by the door now obviously it's not a physical presence right by the door but it is the threat of the physical presence that is out there just constantly glowing and and threatening and that seems to me is a new kind of something that isn't just isn't just speech it's a it's something else and so Come i don't on, know David, how to wrestle with that the, the super strong first amendment no argument. you know there's like 
it's a, it's a really bad set of facts. It's a bad set of facts <laughs> because this guy wait, can I just fin- yes, it's a bad set of facts because one he's really persistent with it. So even there's a restraining order, he still continues doing it. It's particularized. It's not like generic threats. These are very specific you know, detailed threats against a particular person right. who has real reason to believe that these threats could have consequence for her. But don't forget, he probably would have been convicted no matter what, because the facts are so bad against him. If you don't buy his, in my view, totally made up, I'm a rapper right. defense, he goes to prison even if you use the subjective intent standard. Right. So, so where my defense is that it, like there is this terrible thing happening particularly around rap, where this is being used to intensify cases against young men who are interested in rap, where they have written rap lyrics or identified with rap lyrics that happen to be quite violent. And I think that is just horrible. So when, explain, though, because that's in the context of, like, you're on, you're being prosecuted for attempted murder and yes, someone finds your rap and lyrics. And someone finds journal. your rap lyrics, even though your rap lyrics, in the case of Justin Carter, I guess, were written well before the crime. Justin Carter's a different dude in this story. I brought him up for another reason. Oh, okay. But, yes, there, there, there are there other cases defendants where, There's like one that. particular defendant who, where, where there, he had written rap lyrics that were well before the supposed, you know, the supposed crime that he committed. And they were violent and, you know, pose, you know, threatening, you know, had threatening lines in them in the way that a lot of rap lyrics have threatening lines in them. And it was used by the prosecution to indicate this is a person capable of violence. It's a person contemplating violence, planning violence. And that that's not a First Amendment violation. That's a that's a I don't know what that is. Because well, it's, it's, not, a it's not a due process problem. It's 14th Amendment or Fifth Amendment. Right. It's yeah. using some form of evidence that shouldn't be used or misusing evidence. Yeah, in a, in a I completely a, agree with you about that. I mean, way. I'm going to give a formalist answer, which is that that's like a different problem and a different piece of the legal landscape. The The case that I think is that made me pause in this realm of true threats is this kid in Texas. This kid, he was 18. His name was Justin Carter. He was like trolling around on Facebook and being a jerk. And he got into some exchange where he wrote, I think I'm going to shoot up a kindergarten. And some one on Facebook who lives in Canada called the cops and was like, hey, this guy's a threat. And there was nothing contextual to suggest that Justin Carter right. was actually planning to shoot up a kindergarten. Now, to me, this is like a no brainer. And it's just about having like rational, sensible police and law enforcement around. But I say that, I mean, Justin Carter is still facing charges and he spent months in prison and he's only out because someone anonymously posted $500,000 bail for him. So there is a danger of people getting prosecuted under these statutes. And I think, while I don't want us to have a separate rule for online speech about true threats, I think it is true that the way in which online speech can be can ricochet into unexpected places. Like you write it in one place, someone could read it somewhere else, and it's stripped of all tone of voice and facial cues. All those problems really play in here. And so I do think that is reason to be careful about what the legal standard should be. Right. There, there was a This American Life about a guy who did something like this, right, with an Apple store where he... Yeah, and, and about, the cops like knocked on his door and like took him away. In fact, I was wondering if it was the same guy, but I think I don't maybe think it not. is. I don't think it is. Yeah, which means that this is not just like a totally isolated case. Where is the Supreme Court likely to go with this? I mean, I think they're going to make it a subjective intent standard for the listener. This is such a pro-broad First Amendment Supreme Court. I mean, this is the Supreme Court that ruled eight to one that the dad who was trying to sue, you know, Westboro Baptist Church over their horrible, hate-filled chants at his son's funeral, that that dad lost. Um, And I just don't see the court going with this um, other standard of the reasonable listener. That said, I'm not sure that's the right call because— So you think he's going to win? 
I think he's, he's going to get win, a new trial. And then I he'll mean, lose I think, at the new trial. Yeah, and also I'm a little confused because he's already done his time. But I guess this has to do with, you know, whether his conviction gets expunged. And certainly it matters for other cases. Right now there's a split among the federal appellate courts about which standard they go for. I mean, I do think that this point the domestic violence advocates are making about how imp- how devastating threats can be and disruptive in terms of their impact on people's lives. And then the other problem is there just aren't very many prosecutions. And that's been a problem with the stalking laws, too, is that the police are pretty reluctant to bring these cases. And if you raise the bar on them in terms of the evidentiary standard, then maybe you have even fewer cases. Okay, let us go on to our next topic, the GOP field. For reasons I can't quite explain, but that John will explain in a minute, this is the week that the Republican presidential race started. There was a big story about Chris Christie in the New York Times Magazine by my beloved friend Mark Leibovich, which rehabilitated Christie. There was a, there are a lot of stories about the shape of the field, the size of the field. There are 16 candidates, I think, 16 people recently considered candidates for the Republican presidential nomination. John, in a very concise and brilliant way, as you are good, <laughs> what does the field look like? And who are the groups, I should say? We know the groups of the audience more than the groups that the individuals fit into because some straddle the different groups or buckets, as uh, one of the candidates recently put it, as they were describing the the electorate. So one thing we know you've already mentioned, 16 possible players. It is a deep field. We've talked about this before. There has probably never been in Republican politics a field that has as many people who you know, have risen to the top of their field. I mean, they become governors or or charismatic senators. Doesn't mean they would be a good president. Just means that this is a very, very competitive field. I think the groups you have are, okay, so you have the social conservative types. That would be kind of a Mike Huckabee. Mike Pence appeals to social conservatives. Ted Cruz is trying to, but they all are trying to. Rand Paul, you'll notice in the last eight months, to a year has been really consistent about his support. Let's act out a little bit. All right, so the social conservatives want America is a nation that was built on traditional Christian, the Judeo-Christian tradition. We tamper with that at our peril. But the question there is, what does that really mean? Does it mean somebody like, like, um, <laughs> Not I don't mean, much. I mean, anyway, that, I'm just, I'm just trying to like, just, you know, bring a performative aspect into the, the groups. I'm just, I'm just trying to represent. John. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> okay. So let's do the social conservatives. Then you have the national conservative, sort of the neocon, uh, national security types. Let's invade Syria. And the neo, but the, the, what's complicated, of course, about the foreign policy, I would call them foreign policy conservatives because that's a group that's, it's kind of both neocons and traditional kind of real politic Republicans. So it's kind of George Herbert Walker Bush and George W. Bush, if you want to think of. So that's a kind of a grouping that has its own tensions because, you know, John Bolton doesn't want John Bolton, a neocon former ambassador of the United Nations, doesn't want Rand Paul to be president for the same reason Brent Scrocroft doesn't want Rand Paul to be president. And yet John Bolton and Brent Scowcroft are two very different characters in terms of the way they see U.S. projecting power in the world. Um, Bolton being more of a neocon, Scowcroft being more of a assert and exert influence, but don't um, overdo it. Then you have a sort of a, a populist kind of approach. And I think Rick Santorum will be very interesting as a candidate. Um, oh, he's no, making we have a very, to have, we have to muddle through that again? He's making a very strong economic case that basically the and what's interesting about this is not he's basically arguing the Republican Party is the party of 
business, both big and small, and doesn't talk enough about workers and what workers need from their government. Now, his his solutions to this problem are another matter, but he is staking his claim as the champion for the working man. But he's also making a very strong pitch about the strength of the family as far as strong families meaning good economy and strong domestic economy. And and then you have these battles between governors and senators. Clearly, the gubernatorial class is um, on the rise because Washington Republicans are not seen as – they're just not popular and they're probably not going to get more popular. But you have Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio all thinking about running. Two of them are running. Um and so they they will be able to take the spotlight, both because Rand Paul has been smart and is pretty nimble in his grabbing of the news cycle. And Ted Cruz is actually pretty smart and nimble, too, in, in that performance aspect of it. You know, and then on the governor's side, it's kind of obvious. We've talked about it before, Walker Christie. But then you've got things like, wow, Rob Portman, who's running, you know, as a kind of sort of Mitt Romney level moderate Republican Moderate to the extent that he's not very far over on the farthest edge of the conservative. But he's also saying, you know, I had experience at OMB as U.S. trade representative, as a senator. as So I have this kind of interesting mix of experiences, and that's important in this, in you know, government today. So it's you got people coming from all over the place. Who are the definitively yes candidates? Who are the ones that we can say that person is in? Christie, Paul, Cruz... Oh, and I didn't even mention Jeb Bush, who's thinking about it too, right? Yeah. Christy Paul Cruz. Jindal. I'm just Perry. forgetting. Perry, oh, my God. Perry, for sure. I'm not so sure about Rubio. I mean, I think he's very, very – he's doing everything that looks like a guy who's running. But at the very end, if Jeb runs, you know, things could, could happen. So I would put him in a – I mean, he's definitely behaving like a guy who's running and preparing for the presidential campaign. Ryan? Um, Ryan, I'd put in the – category sort of where Rubio is, kind of thinking about it, having conversations, but circumstances may keep him out. There are these states where they probably can't have two. So Florida has two potential candidates, Rubio and Bush. Wisconsin has Walker and Ryan. Ohio has Kasich and Portman. Texas has Cruz and Perry. Texas probably can have both of those, but you, it's hard to see two successful candidates from Texas each will, of those states. Texas yeah. will have both of those, for sure. I mean, those guys are both running. And, and where are the markers that are going to kick people out? I still don't quite understand. They've compressed their primary season, right? No, they're, they're, the markers will come. The, marker, the first marker will be money. Whoever's going to run is going to need a lot of money, not only because just competing costs money, but also everybody's going to have a sugar daddy super PAC out there. And so if you want to run... You're going to need money to fight back against the super PAC. Now, you could run the Santorum-style campaign. In the end, of course, Santorum had his own sugar daddy in Foster Freeze. So he, but otherwise, he kind of lived off the land and built a campaign in Iowa and and sort of slingshotted out of there and was the most competitive other Republican to Mitt Romney of all the ones who ran. But that's a really hard thing to do. There was a, an account... And I can't remember where I read this this morning, but that um, Ted Cruz gave the pitch for two hours to Sheldon Adelson, the um, Las Vegas gambling tycoon and $20 million backer of Newt Gingrich in the last cycle. 
and uh, basically didn't take. <laughs> and he like made the big pitch, and and Adelson didn't sign up. So that's so a, Adelson's still available. So he's still available that's for right, those fifteen others. So you, you know, you're it's looking a, for a sugar daddy. The money thing now. Ted Cruz needs l- less money than others because he'll get lots of free media because he'll say incendiary things, and he's so he'll get covered. So he needs he needs less. But then and then we'll have our first debates probably in the fall of next of the of 15 so the debates will knock out some people as it did as they did last time you know rick perry will have a little bit higher bar in the debates he'll he'll benefit of course from low expectations but the debates could knock him or a few other candidates out because there will be people will be wanting a winnowing to happen if there really are this many candidates um in the show you're making me feel like i could just basically ignore this for a year yeah. rely on you to keep it, uh, to keep it for me. <laughs> I, I think you can. The, the 2015 is an interesting period because candidates come out of nowhere and they have their moments and they are interesting because they tell us something about the politics of the party at the time. And so it'll be an interesting year. But and we'll remind ourselves of this eight billion times before the election. Things can be interesting, but not determinative of the final outcome. So you could argue even that, you know, Herman Cain was never going to be president, was never going to be the nominee. It was just not going to happen. The same is true with Michelle Bachman. It was just insane for anybody to think that Michelle Bachman was ever going to be the nominee. And it told you more about the people thinking that than about their analysis. However, they were really interesting candidates in terms of what they told us about what the electorate was looking for. What they tell us is what other candidates start paying attention to as they make their own pitches and modify their pitches to reach those voters. There will be lots of interesting stories about people who will ultimately not be in the final race that will nevertheless be uh, be worthwhile to cover, not just because we're horse race happy, but because it will tell us something larger. I continue to, I, I know I say this every time we talk about this field, I think this is the strongest presidential field a party has had in our lifetime. The debates are going to be so smart. Again, I don't agree with any of them about anything, but they are really, really, really smart. And it's going to be there. There's not going to be like a clown car the way there was last time, the way you had Michelle Bachman and Herman Cain and Santorum and Gingrich. And it was just, the thing was an embarrassment to the party. They this Republican Party is going to come out of this process looking strong interesting, compelling, filled with ideas, Hillary Clinton is, is going to be in trouble. I will put money on that right now. One thing that's interesting about that ideas claim, which I've already made in print, so I'm not trying to back away from it. I think you're right because of what we've seen so far. We've seen, you know, Rand Paul is trying to basically make a name for himself by offering new kinds of ideas, new relative to traditional Republican orthodoxy. And it'll be what you could imagine is what happened in the 2008 Democratic field, which is it becomes a kind of race to grab different parts of the issue set as a way to distinguish yourself because there's so many damn candidates. It's like, oh, another person who wants to, you know, turn Medicare into private accounts or offer premium support or whatever they want to call it. There's an incentive in the system to get creative as a policy matter, not because the electorate out there is really psyched to read the 35th page of an AEI white paper on uh, corporate taxation, but because the candidates are looking around trying to make some kind of noise for themselves that sets them apart. And policies Does that move them to the middle, at least some of them? I mean, that's what happened to the Democrats in 2008. It'll move them. Well, it, it'll move them in both directions. It'll move them. You know, I'm a candidate. Ted Cruz goes I gotta, to the right. Yeah, if Cruz 
Bruce is on my right. I want to find my little niche in here. And it's the way, you know, when when Herman Cain, again, this is why candidates tweak the field, even though they'll never be the nominee. Herman Cain forced everybody to talk about taxes in a way that they weren't really talking about taxes in the Republican primary. I mean, yes, they were all for tax cuts, but it forced them to get a little more specific. John uh, Edwards did this to Democratic candidates about poverty. Uh, suddenly, they all had to like talk about poverty for two weeks until he was out of the race. Um, so it'll depend. I think you could see I could you could see people go to the left and the right. And obviously, with Jeb Bush, if he runs, immigration and education are going to be uh, huge issues. And the issue of nor- uh, foreign policy will be big because there will be a lot of candidates. You've already seen some of the jockeying. A lot of the candidates who see it to their advantage to knock Rand Paul down by saying he's dangerous because he wants to withdraw from the world. All right. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When you are withdrawing from the world, just drinking as you withdraw from the world, what are you going to be chattering about, Emily? All right. I hate to be so bleak, but there is this horrible pending execution in Texas of a man named Scott Panetti, who has been a schizophrenic for decades. He actually hasn't had any mental health evaluation for the past seven years, but they're all kinds of markers. I mean, this is a guy who insisted on representing himself at his capital murder trial. And yes, he definitely committed this murder, but he dressed up in a cowboy suit. He tried to subpoena Jesus Christ. I mean, this is just someone who is really seriously mentally ill. And there is no reason to think that isn't still a serious problem for him. And the Texas courts just don't care. And I, you know, even if you're pro-death penalty, I just don't understand the need to turn the whole criminal justice system into a farce by executing people who are so clearly don't have the capacity to understand in any real way what they did or what's happening Did he to make a, an insanity defense? No, he represented himself. He, like, made some crazy defense. But, I mean, he's someone who thinks that the, the prison dentist implanted a the transmitter su- in his tooth. The like, Supreme Court doesn't – the Supreme Court has not weighed in on whether you can execute crazy people? They've weighed in about this case in the past, and they said that it's not enough for a defendant just to be aware that he's going to be executed and why – that you have to have a rational understanding of why the state plans to kill you. But they didn't really tell Texas exactly how to apply that. And Texas is essentially just trying to water down the standard. And so most recently on Thursday, the Texas Criminal Court of Appeals rejected Panetti's latest appeal. And it will go back up to the Supreme Court. And, you know, if they are the ones who have to step in, somebody has to step in to stop this execution. John Dickerson wants to chatter. My chatter is about Bob Dylan, but not really Bob Dylan. So... Oh. This one fellow whose name uh, is, I'm going to probably butcher it, but um, Frederick Wickingson, he's 41 years old. And this week at the Philadelphia Academy of Music, he was the single person in the audience at a Bob Dylan concert. And Dylan played with his whole band and came out and played a Buddy Holly song, Fats Domino's Blueberry Hill, Chuck Willis's It's Too Late, She's Gone a few other songs. Anyway, and this fan, huge fan of Bob Dylan's, was said his face hurt. He was smiling so much uh, at the end of the concert. Now, what interests me about this is not just that I would like to have been that single concert goer, but that the concert was a part of an experiment. It's, a, it's of course, it's a Swedish film series called um, Experiment Alone, where people experience things completely alone that are usually reserved for large crowds. So they've done films on people at comedy clubs and karaoke bars. Um, and so this was an attempt to 
record the experience of what it would be like to see Bob Dylan, which you normally would do in a huge crowd, but just have it be a one-on-one experience. I don't know what one discovers from doing these experiments, but I thought, David, with your love of group singing, that you would have some thought about the relationship between experiencing things as a part of a group and experiencing them just in a solo one-on-one context. It sounds horrible, actually. Like, there are things that you want to do alone, but the things that you want to do in groups, you want to do in groups. Like, who would want to go? There are these interesting soccer games. Occasionally, a soccer team will be banned because of the racist behavior of its fans. It will have to host its next game in an empty stadium. So they'll play an international soccer match where Milan will play, you know, uh, Paris Saint-Germain, and there'll be no one in the stands. I love it. Exile, soccer style. That's really Um, funny. I don't know. It seems terrible. I'm such a fan of, there are so few chances to have collective experience in the world, and concerts are one of the great ones. Like, how do you sing along, like, with, like, a Rolling Stone? You don't. No, you'd feel too self-conscious. Also, the pro- I mean, and I guess part of the point here is the is the effect that the solitary experience has not just on the audience but on the performer. I wonder from the Dylan standpoint, because Dylan's career has been so much about a push and pull between him and his fans. He basically hates his fans and the and the demands that they have made on him over the years, putting him into all these little boxes. Which, but on the other hand, it is his escape from those boxes that has spurred all of this great activity. And he's been on a basically constant tour for the last 20 years. And so is he on the constant tour because he does get something from his fans or because, and at most shows, all the shows I've been to, there's very little evidence that he's interacting with the fans. I mean, that's not entirely true, but it feels like it sometimes. And, um, and yet, on the other hand, he obviously gets something from it because he's been on 20 years of touring. So you wonder what, what it was like for Dylan to play to a single person, but we'll probably never find out. My chatter is about an interesting Kickstarter that I read about called Lunar Mission One. It is a Kickstarter to send a probe to the moon and then to have it dig down into the lunar surface. When we've sent uh, probes to the moon or or astronauts to the moon, they apparently only went down a couple meters. The theory is if you dig down 20 or 100 meters deep, you can get to the the stuff that the moon is made of. You can have a real sense about what how the moon was formed four and a half billion years ago, what it was like, what its connection is to Earth, and learn great things about the history of the solar system. I don't know whether you can learn great things about the history of the solar system. I just love the idea of crowdsourcing a lunar mission because... You know, why not? Like Clearly this should be called Moon Core, right? Moon Core? Yeah, it's like Down a Stilton spoon for the moon. Exactly. So they've, they're trying to raise about a million dollars just to start the process. I didn't, I didn't read enough to know how much they think it will cost. It will obviously cost more than a million dollars. So if someone has to choose between investing in Atlas Obscura and this Kickstarter, which should it be, David? Oh, definitely Atlas Obscura. <laughs> definitely Atlas Obscura. But why choose? Why choose? Why choose? Anyway, I advise you to check out Lunar Mission 1. It's also a good name. Our intern is Max Tawney. Our producer is Mike Wollett. Where is Max? Oh, we're in New York. Duh. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, oh. I was looking over to the corner where Max usually is in my line of sight. There was no Max. But, of course, that's because I'm 223 miles away. (laughs) Yes, you are. Hello, Max. You are maxed out. Uh, our intern is Max Tony. Our producer is Mike Volo. Joel Myers, our managing producer. Andy Bowers, the executive producer of Slate Podcast. Our show page is slate.com slash gabfest. It has links to what we talked about today. Facebook.com slash gabfest for Facebooking. At Slate Gabfest for tweeting. Emailing us is gabfest at slate.com. You can subscribe to the Gabfest on iTunes. Leave a comment and rating. 
search for Slate Political Gap Fest in the iTunes store. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson, David Plotz, we will talk to you after Thanksgiving. Might be after Thanksgiving for you already, come to think of it. It isn't for us yet. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.